We are, as you have no doubt figured out by now, we are entering into what we call Holy Week, which is a celebration of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Next week is Easter, Resurrection Sunday, but this morning is Palm Sunday. Uh, Let me also mention on Friday night at our Southwood campus, we'll be having a Good Friday service. It's going to be at 6.30 p.m. We hope that you will join us for that uh, this Friday. Uh, There uh, will be some emotionally and visually intense elements to it. Uh, Nothing super graphic, but if you have particularly small kids or kids that are easily uh, affected by those types of things, you may want to um, go ahead and put them in the child care, which we will have on Friday night. But we look forward to seeing you there next Sunday, normal services. Everything will be normal for Easter Sunday. We're going to spend most of the morning today in John chapter 12, which is the passage that Kenny read from a few minutes ago. If you have a Bible, get over to John chapter 12. I will be reading from that passage. I want to uh, read it again here before we pray, just to reset us and refocus us for a moment on the passage. John chapter 12, I'm going to start in verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the morning. We're grateful for the opportunity to worship you. We're grateful most of all for your son, Jesus, our Savior, our King, our Messiah. We're grateful that he came to deliver us, not only from the external problems of our lives, but to deliver us from sin and the consequences of sin that lead to death and separation from you. I pray that we would remember that and worship him this morning. We thank you for the wonderful reminder from our children this morning. Lord, we pray as we study your word that you would help us to understand it. Open up our minds and take away any confusion, take away any distractions that would prevent us from hearing what you have to say. Father, move in our hearts that you'd take away our rebellious attitudes Take away our fear and allow us to follow you faithfully. And then empower our hands and our feet and our lips for your service as we prepare to go from here in a while into a world that needs salvation and the good news of Jesus. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, our family was up in the Northeast on vacation, and we were in Boston visiting some family but we were traveling to upstate New York. So we rented a car to drive the four and a half hours from Boston to New York. And uh, something happened to me that had never happened in a rental car before. We got about an hour outside of Boston 
and suddenly the car broke down. Uh, this virtually new car, less than 10,000 miles on it, headed 75 miles an hour down the highway, and it just decelerated and stopped. So I pulled over off into the shoulder on the highway, and uh, fortunately we were kind of next to a grassy hill, so everybody climbed out of the car, we sat down on the hill next to the highway, and I called the rental car company to get help. And they said, okay, we're going to help you out, we're going to send someone to get you. What followed were several of the most frustrating and harrowing hours of my life. Uh, We sat on the side of the highway for about an hour and a half. And finally they sent somebody to get the car, but not us. And he drove away and said, we'll send somebody else in a while to get you. Finally they sent somebody to get us and they transported us to where they had taken the car which was a tow yard about an hour out of Boston. So there we we go in with our three kids into this office of a tow place. And I don't know if you've ever been in the office of a tow place, but it's like a prison block. Gray walls, white tile floors. There's a person behind a counter that you buzz a buzzer in order to talk to them and they come and like open the glass. I guess they're afraid you're going to try to break back there and get whatever they have. I mean, it was, and there's, there's nothing really to eat or drink. There was a vending machine with like Cheetos from the Clinton administration that had been sitting there forever. The kids are frustrated. We're tired. We're beginning to get hungry. We're calling the rental car place and they say, hey, we're sending you a car. Hour after hour after hour, four and a half hours while we sat in this tow place. And finally around hour three or three and a half, They say the car has left the airport. It's on the way. And then we waited and we waited some more and we kept calling them and saying things like, we are on vacation and this is not fun. Please get us out. It got to a point finally about the fourth hour that we're outside and while the kids were playing on a median next to the highway, don't judge me, There was very little to do. They're running races and I'm standing by the road and I'm watching down the road and every car that comes, here's what's going through my mind. Is this the car that will rescue us? Is this our car? Is this our car? I'm looking for a guy with the rental car company uniform to come driving up to get us out. And finally, about five hours into this ordeal, the car comes up. I've never been so happy to see like a Ford Escape or whatever they sent us in my life. We piled into the car and we made it to our destination just after dark. Now, the reason I tell that story is because for just a minute, I want you to tap into that feeling of desperation that we had at that tow place. Maybe you've been in a situation like that where you are absolutely out of control and all that you can think about is I need rescue. I need somebody to come along and and get me out. If you've ever felt like that, then you are in good company with the Jewish people at the time of Jesus in the first century. Because that feeling of desperation, that was their life. 
That was the way they lived for hundreds of years. The people of Israel had been oppressed by nation after nation after nation. There were the Babylonians who carried them off into exile. And then there were the Persians who let them come back, but still ruled them. And then there were the Greeks. And then the Maccabees and the Hasmonean dynasty, which was a Jewish dynasty that was bloodthirsty and cruel. And then in the time of Jesus, there was the Romans who ruled the area of Palestine, who imposed heavy taxes on the Jewish people in addition to the taxes they already had to pay for religious services to the temple. The Romans had a bloodthirsty governor, you know his name, Pontius Pilate, who was violent and hated the Jewish people. And so at every moment, the Jewish people are thinking, we need rescue. We need somebody to get us out. And so they would go back into the Old Testament. And as they read the Old Testament, they would think about these passages in the Old Testament where God, through the prophets and through David and through his people, had said, a rescuer is coming. There is a king coming to the nation of Israel who will lead you out of oppression and into peace, who will lead you out of death and into life. There is a king who will be a king of peace, a king of power, a king of love. That's the Messiah. And he's the one you're looking for. So in the time of Jesus, day after day, year after year, they were always asking this question, where is he? Where is he? Like me looking down the road for that rental car. Every leader who comes along, the question in their minds, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the Messiah? They would probably go back to Psalm 2 quite frequently. In fact, Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. Let me share a little bit of Psalm 2 with you this morning. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. If you were a Jewish person in the first century when Jesus came, this was a great passage of scripture because you would read this and think, man, shattering the nations. That sounds awesome. Smashing the Romans, that sounds amazing. That's what we need. And so when Jesus comes There was a small group of people surrounding Jesus that began to say, this is the guy, right? Not everybody in the nation of Israel, of course, said that, but there was a group of people surrounding Jesus, thousands of people who would gather to hear him teach, who would gather and witness his miracles. And as Jesus' ministry progresses, more and more people begin to say, this is the guy, right? And what we see on Palm Sunday, we celebrated on Palm Sunday at the triumphal entry, is what we just saw the kids reenact for us a few minutes ago. That the idea that Jesus is the one who will deliver us reaches this fever pitch in the last week of his life where there's a large group of people in the nation of Israel. Again, it's not everybody, but it's some who see Jesus come into Jerusalem 
And they say, this is the guy, this is the moment. And they grab palm branches, they begin to wave them and they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because their deliverer is here. But of course, the problem was this, and and we know this, that only some days later, Jesus would be crucified through a conspiracy in his own nation and with the Romans. Because although his people said, this is the deliverer, some of his people said, this is the Messiah, they had a woefully inadequate understanding of what he came to save them from. It's not that they were wrong. It's not that Jesus did not come to save the world from oppression and foreign governments. It's not that he did not come to save them from the Romans. And that's coming. Jesus' earthly kingdom is coming. But what they missed is this, that before there could be a perfect kingdom of peace and righteousness, there had to be subjects of the king who were peaceful. And righteous. The problem of sin had to be addressed before the kingdom could come. And yet they missed it. And as we talk about Jesus coming and his death and resurrection this morning, what we want to do is say, this is why Jesus came first and foremost. And this is why at this moment, we don't yet see Jesus reigning on a throne in Jerusalem because God is giving time for the world to see. Here's why Jesus came the first time, because the problem of sin has to be addressed before his kingdom can come. We think our problems are external, if we're honest. We think most of the problems that we face in our lives are due to other people and other systems, right? So we look around the world and we say, if only the governments of the world were better, then I'd have a better life. If only my family didn't have so many problems that I have to fix, I'd have a better life. If only I had a better boss, I'd really have a better life, right? And what we see on Palm Sunday and Easter is Jesus says, actually, the problem of sin in our world begins in our hearts, begins in our minds. And so he comes in on Palm Sunday and he offers himself as a king who wants to deal with the problem at its root. And so do we recognize that? And will we worship God for sending a savior who came to deal with the problem of sin and the problem of death that springs from sin? That's what we're gonna look at this morning as we talk about the triumphal entry. I wanna make just a few points about the triumphal entry this morning, mostly from John 12. The first one is this. We know that we need saving, right? We know that we need Saving, right? As you read John 12, one of the interesting things is that John tells us exactly why this crowd came to see Jesus when he marched into Jerusalem. Now, this probably was a Galilean crowd because Jesus was traveling from Galilee into Jerusalem. So on the side of Jerusalem he's entering, it's mostly Galileans. And Galilee was kind of like the Wild West of ancient Israel. These were unruly people to a certain extent. And they see Jesus and they go, this is the guy. And John says, here's why they came. You know why they came? Because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And here's what they thought. Anybody who can do that 
has to be from God. Anybody who could raise a man from the dead by saying, hey, Lazarus, come on out. That guy has to be from God. So they look and they say, this is the one. And they know they need salvation. They understand enough to understand, look, we're not in control of life and death. We're not in control of the Romans. We're not in control of really anything in our lives. But here comes a guy who can raise the dead. Surely he can defeat the Romans. And so they know they need salvation. But again, the problem is they do not understand that they need salvation first from themselves, from what's in their own hearts. I think just like us, they, they want to be free of sickness and death. They want to be free of evil governments. They want to be free of war. What they don't want is to hear this, that the reason our world is corrupt is because you're corrupt. The reason there's sin in your nation, people of Israel, is because you are sinful people. And so we know we need saving, but all too often we don't want to hear the message that salvation starts in here. I was remembering this week, another car story. I don't know if you have ever owned a car that deepened your prayer life substantially. I've owned several. Uh, And shortly after I graduated college, I had this car. It was a 1992 Toyota Tercel. Right? It's a car so great, they stopped making them. They retired its number. And this car got to a point where it, it leaked oil badly, badly. I had maybe a 20-mile range before uh, it would be out of oil. And so I knew something was wrong deep inside the engine of this vehicle. It probably needed a brand new engine. In fact, eventually I did have to put a new engine in the vehicle. But when I found the problem, I didn't have the money or want to spend the money to fix it. So what did I do? I kept four quarts of oil in my trunk. And about every 20 or 25 miles, I would pop open the hood wherever I was and just pour oil into it. And I could see the oil dripping out on the ground as I was pouring it in. Right, but it kept the car going. At least for a little while, it kept the car going. I knew I had a problem. I knew I had a serious problem, but all I really wanted to do was essentially stick a Band-Aid on the problem. I didn't want to address the problem at its heart. That's what's going on at the triumphal entry. These are people like us and they look around their world and they say, look, we have a problem. Our leaders are violent. There are evil nations surrounding us. Even right here in Israel, the Jewish leaders are corrupt. We have a problem and we need to be delivered. We know we need saving. But they don't understand how bad the problem is even though Jesus had been telling them, the problem is you. The problem is your heart. The problem is the sickness of sin. In the Sermon on the Mount, the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, Jesus said these words, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? But to be poor in spirit is this. I come before God with an attitude that says, before God, I have nothing that would allow me to enter God's kingdom. 
I have nothing good I've done that will be good enough to get into the kingdom of God. I'm poor. I lack what I need. And what I need is for God to transform me, for God to give me what I need. That's what it is to be poor in spirit. And Jesus says, if you don't come with that attitude, then you will never acknowledge your sin and you will never receive salvation. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know they're not good enough. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first step they need to take is to say, I can't get there. So when Jesus comes in at the triumphal entry, they want victory. But they do not understand their need for forgiveness. We know we need saving. But we misunderstand what we need saving from. And yet, despite our sin, despite our misunderstanding, God sent us a savior. God sends us a savior. So the picture you've you've thought about probably over and over as you've read this passage, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And this is, John tells us, this is in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Why does he come in on a donkey? Well, because a donkey is very different from a war horse. Okay, a conquering military leader would come in on a war horse. Jesus comes in on a donkey. Why? Because he's a king of peace. A donkey is a beast of burden that you use for agriculture during times of peace. Here comes your king, Zion, riding on a donkey, a king of peace, a king of humility. But they recognize the imagery. And so what do they do? They grab the branches of palm trees and they begin to wave them and they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There are two places in the New Testament actually where a group of people grab palm branches and wave them. One is right here in John chapter 12. The other place is in Revelation chapter seven as there are people from every tribe, tongue, people and nation gathered around the lamb, gathered around Jesus. And all these people, it says they shout with a loud voice and they have palm branches in their hands. And they say what? They say salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne. Why do they grab palm branches here and there? Because the palm branches are a sign that our deliverer is here and we expect victory and salvation right now. And they begin to shout, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are quoting Psalm 118, which they often would quote at feasts like this one. Remember, this is Passover. Hosanna, the word is a Hebrew word. It means save us, deliver us. Psalm 118, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They say our Savior is here. And they take their coats and garments off and they place them on the road for the donkey. The best way I could describe this is this was the ancient equivalent of laying out the red carpet and striking up the band. Some of you saw the videos from a few months ago when our new Aggie football coach, Jimbo Fisher, arrived in town. And what did you see? He flew in on a jet. And those jet doors opened and he descended down the stairs and they had laid out a red carpet for him. And as he walked across the red carpet, 
The band struck up the Aggie war hymn and people began to cheer. What was that? That was the Aggie Hosanna. Deliver us from mediocrity into excellence. That's it. That's what they're doing. That's what's happening in John chapter 12. Here he comes and they say, we need help. We need deliverance. Save us now and give us success. Because the king has come. And interestingly, Jesus accepts their praise. Jesus never says, oh, 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 wait, wait, you got the wrong guy. He rides in on a donkey, a donkey that he had chosen for the occasion to say, I'm the savior. I'm the one you're looking for. But again, the problem was this. They recognized the savior, but they under, they misunderstood what they needed saving from. Consequently, God sent us a savior, but we rejected him. We rejected the Savior. Now, I want to be clear. Sometimes you may have heard that the same crowd that praised him on Palm Sunday then shouted for his crucifixion on Good Friday. This was almost certainly not the same group of people. There were probably different groups of people. Remember, there were likely hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims in Jerusalem for the Passover. This is a group of Galilean pilgrims. As we get closer to the day of Jesus' death, we see people from Jerusalem and we see mostly the chief priests and the scribes, the leaders of the nation are the ones pushing for his crucifixion. But, but we don't want to make the mistake then of thinking, hey, this was not representative of the entire nation. Ultimately, the entire nation represented by its leaders rejected Jesus, and ultimately the entire world, represented even by the Gentiles, rejected Jesus because Jesus was the Savior we needed, but he wasn't the Savior we thought we needed. He wasn't the Savior we wanted. And what I find amazing in the parallel passage in Luke, in the triumphal entry passage in Luke, right as Jesus is marching or riding through the crowd and they're shouting, Hosanna! Jesus pauses as he sees the city of Jerusalem. And Luke says this, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Everybody else is rejoicing and Jesus is crying. Because he knows that this praise will not translate into national repentance and personal repentance where the men and women of Israel and then the world say, we need a savior who will save us from ourselves, from our own sin. And so he begins to cry because he knows what's coming. Even at that moment that would seem to be a moment of victory, Jesus knows what's coming. The very beginning of the book of John, 11 chapters prior to the triumphal entry, John, in his opening prologue to his book, he says this about Jesus. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. See, here was the problem. 
Here's what Jesus did. Jesus is the light of the world. John says that. Jesus is the light of the world. And what did he do as the light of the world? He took a giant spotlight and he shone that spotlight into the darkest recesses of our hearts. And as that light shone upon us, we knew we needed the light, but we saw the darkness that was in us. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus say to the people? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You're not good enough. In the final week of Jesus' life, he would go out to the temple court and he overturned the tables of the money changers who generated revenue for the religious establishment of his own day. And Jesus would say, even in your worship, even when you think you're worshiping God, you're greedy and you're selfish. And people don't like that kind of thing. What Jesus did is he said, you cannot make it on your own. You have a problem. And we don't like hearing that we have a problem. We don't like hearing that we're not good enough. When I was a sophomore in high school, I had a, an English teacher who would frequently leave the room during class for long periods of time. We knew she was going to smoke because we could tell when she returned. But she would assign us a worksheet and then she'd depart. 15, 20, 25 minutes, she would be gone. And so one day we were in class and she was gone and somebody said, hey, while she's gone, we should all leave. Now it was a terrible plan. There was nowhere for us to go, right? 30 teenagers are not gonna hide in a stairwell for very long. But to us, it sounded like a great idea. We're like, let's do it, let's do it. And it began to gather support. This idea begins to gather support. And so we're on the verge of going and everybody's lined up except one kid. And his name was Chet. I still remember. I can see Chet's righteous face looking back at us. And he said, I'm not doing it. And we said, come on, Chet. If you don't go, then we can't pull it off because we knew that Chet would tell her where we were. And so he said, come on, Chet, please. He goes, no, it's, it's wrong. We're like, well, kind of, you know, but it, it feels like the right thing to do right now. Come on, Chet. And he would not budge. We hated Chet. Now, why? Because what did he do? He took a light and he shone it right back at us. What you're doing isn't right. We didn't like that. And therefore we didn't like him. That's what Jesus does, except to a much greater degree. He says, look, you're so depraved and sinful that you are destined for an eternity apart from God. And I am the one who can lead you to life. And he offers a way out. As Jesus' crucifixion gets closer, you see the urgency of his preaching increase. So in John chapter 12, Jesus cried out. He said, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world 
so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And he'd go on and he would say, make no mistake, judgment is coming. The person who doesn't believe in me, he's been judged already by the Father. Judgment is coming. But he says, I'm here right now to tell you that even in your darkness and your sin, there's a way out if you believe in me. This was only a short period of time after this triumphal entry at the Passover feast as Jesus stood among the people and he exhorted and he pleaded and he said, please, I'm here to save you. But the world said, no, we don't want your brand of salvation. And so we rejected the king. And so God sent a savior We rejected the Savior, but still, he chose to die to save us. He chose to die to save sinners who put him to death. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, a verse that many of you will be familiar with, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The only way for us to receive forgiveness of our sins was for the Savior and King of the world to die in our place, to take the death that we had earned and deserved. And for those who put him to death, even the world that rejected him, Jesus died to pay the penalty of sin. While we were yet sinners, not once we got better, not once we stopped sinning, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, even as he marched to Jerusalem at the triumphal entry. Jesus knew this was coming because the word of God said it was coming. Even in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The iniquity of us all, the sin of us all, every single one of us has turned to his own way and said, I prefer my way to God's way. I prefer victory without having to deal with my sin. And yet Jesus says, there is only one way to victory. And it's through the death of the Son of God and his resurrection. Because you can't fix this. The iniquity of us all fell upon him. So that as we move into this week, that's what we reflect upon. That we have a Savior who willingly died and rose again so we could have life. 
Friday will be a more somber service as we reflect upon his death. And then next Sunday we celebrate. Because in him we have life. To all who believe in Jesus. John would go on in John chapter 1. After that passage I read earlier in John chapter 1. But as many as received him. To them he gave the right to be called sons of God. To those who received him. Who were called by his name. That Jesus called out, if anyone believes in me, he can be saved. And he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. So how do we respond then as we understand who he is and what he's done? A couple of thoughts. First one is this. Trust in him. I don't know where everybody in the room is spiritually this morning. Some of you I know, some of you I don't know. If you are in a place where you have not ever trusted in what Jesus did, if you're in a place where you say, you know what, I think if I can just do good enough, I'm confident God will let me in to heaven. The message of Jesus Christ is you can't be good enough. You need to go through him. And so you trust in what Jesus did that you cannot do, that he died for your sin and he rose again. You trust him. And secondly, we worship him. If you know Jesus Christ, then worship and thank him this week. Of all weeks in the year, take time this week and say, I'm gonna sing to him. I'm gonna worship him. You know, it's interesting in John chapter 12, shortly before the triumphal entry, there's a scene of worship. Before Jesus goes to this place of his death, there are a few people who recognize who he is and how worthy he is to be worshiped. And one of them was his friend, Mary. Remember Mary, the sister of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Jesus went into their home in Bethany and Mary comes up to him and she has a bottle of Chanel number five, or whatever it was. It says extremely expensive, pure nard. And she breaks it open. Probably something she saved for for a long time. And she knelt down at Jesus' feet. And she poured that fragrance on his feet and she began to wash his feet with her hair. And the disciples say, hey, that's wasteful. Jesus said, now let her alone. She's preparing me for the day of my burial. She's worshiping because she knows who he is. That's the spirit in which we want to approach Jesus Christ this week. We're going to close with a song after I pray. And as we close, we want to worship our Savior who is great and who died and rose again so we can have eternal life. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful. We recognize that we are sinners and we want to approach you poor in spirit because we know, as Jesus said, blessed is the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We want to be those men and women who recognize our sin and accept the gift of eternal life. And then day after day, we say, thank you, God, for giving Jesus Christ who died while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. It's a gift we did not earn. It's a gift we could not repay. And every day, not just on Sunday, not just on Easter, we celebrate because that's where our life comes from. We thank you. And we pray we would move through our week in a spirit 
of worship because of all you did for us through him. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.